Tony, it's all forgiven, please come back. And if you can't personally come back, and my view is that the best Prime Minister we've got an offer at the moment is still Tony Blair, people should be begging him for lessons in political strategy and political self-control. Hello there and welcome back to the Oxford PPE Society podcast. We are releasing these episodes every Friday at 9am until the end of Trinity term in June and you can find them via our website, our SoundCloud or our Facebook page. Every week we will be in discussion with leading figures from the fields of philosophy, politics or economics. We hope that they will provide regular enjoyment in these uncertain times. I'm Leon Ascal and this week I'm joined by the long-serving Labour official Lord Andrew Adonis. Andrew has had a career in politics since 1987 when he served as an Oxford City Councillor for the SDP. Ten years on, he was in government again, but this time in the number 10 policy unit, which he soon came to lead. Here, he was instrumental in the introduction of tuition fees, then capped at £3,000 a year. And by 2005, he had been made a life peer and was a minister in what is now known as the Department for Education. Under Gordon Brown, he served in the Cabinet as Secretary of State for Transport, where he pioneered the plan for HS2, the high-speed rail proposal. During Labour's time out of government, he chaired Progress, an internal Labour organisation, and led the National Infrastructure Commission. Since then, he has been a vocal advocate against Brexit from the House of Lords and in the media. It is a forgotten subject in recent weeks, and I kicked off by asking him if it was a lost battle for the next few years at least. Yes, it's over for now, for two reasons. Firstly, because of course the coronavirus crisis means that it's over for everyone for a bit. Indeed, it's not at all clear to me they'll be able to be a Brexit deal by the end of the year just because of the exigencies of the crisis. But it's also over in the sense that there was an election last December. It was very clear what the Conservatives' policy was going into that. It's my view that if the opposition had been able to unite and we hadn't had Jeremy Corbyn's Labour leader, actually the will of the British people was to remain in the EU. But because the government won and has a majority, they clearly have a mandate to do these negotiations. However, Parliament will kick back into action again once these negotiations have been finished. We can see what the fruit of them is, and that clearly in this current crisis isn't going to be for some time. Obviously, Corbyn's balancing act didn't really work out as planned, but do you think it was possible at all? So what could have been done to make it succeed? I don't think his balancing act could have succeeded, partly because it wasn't really a balancing act. What he'd done by the end was to agree to hold a referendum with an option to remain, but then himself disowns that agreement. And you can't have a leader who disowns his own policy. Do you remember he said, horrific memory is so terrible, I barely like even to talk about it. But, you know, in the election campaign, he couldn't even make up his mind during the campaign whether he would support his own policy in a referendum. His own view shifted. At the beginning, he said that the Labour Party would take a view on the referendum, which it had itself called. Well, that's ridiculous. You can hardly have a party calling a referendum with an option to remain and then disowning that option. But then at the end, he said that he might not take a view at all. He might just sit on the fence and let uh, other people sort it out. Well, you know, that isn't what leadership is made of. So even leaving aside all of Jeremy Corbyn's other problems, his policy on the Brexit referendum was simply farcical. He wasn't even supporting his own party's policy by the end of the election. And I think the public sensed that. Do you think it would have been quite easy for another leader, whoever that would be, to have kept the two sides on board? Well, there wasn't a problem in keeping the two sides of order in the Labour Party because the overwhelming majority of Labour Party members and indeed the majority of Labour Party voters were Remainers. 
and it was always clear to me from the beginning that once leave wasn't a viable policy without doing massive economic damage, this is the crucial thing. It might have been at the beginning possible to have, as it were, had a, a, a leave remain position if we'd stayed in the customs union and stayed in most of the single markets, something like the European economic area. But once it was clear that wasn't an offer from the government, because Theresa May, do you remember in her Lancaster House speech, she set her line as meaning leaving customs union and all aspects of the single market. Once that was clear, and it was clear we could only do Brexit with massive economic damage, at that point, the overwhelming majority of Labour Party members and Labour MPs were in favour of a referendum with an option to remain in response to that policy from the Conservative government. It is true that not all Labour voters would have favoured that position. That's true. But then the judgment is, for them, is how important to you is leaving the European Union as opposed to all the other reasons why you vote Labour. And to be absolutely blunt, for those voters, it was a small minority, I would say probably no more than 10% of Labour voters, who wanted to leave the European Union at all costs, including leaving the single market and the customs union. That's 10%. If that was the issue which mattered to them above all, then they clearly weren't going to vote Labour if we took a Remain position. But nor did they vote Labour on the position that we had in the election last year, because, of course, we were in favour of a referendum with an option to remain anyway. But on the other side, remember, all the way through until last year's election, a majority of the public actually wanted to remain. So if we'd had a clear position giving expression to that view, we would, in my judgment, have been able to get a lot more votes from the Liberal Democrats and a lot more votes from the Conservatives. Because, of course, remember, in the 2016 election, nearly half of Conservative voters voted to remain. So by sitting on the fence and trying to bridge the unbridgeable, which is saying that you're trying to hold together leave and remain in the context of the leave offer being the hardest leave offer possible, leaving the customs union and the single market and doing economic damage, you were clearly riding for a fall. And when you add into that Jeremy Corbyn's own leadership, which, of course, for other reasons, was catastrophic. I mean, I was canvassing in marginal seats in last December's election, where several times in one street, I was having conversations about the IRA. So I think we can safely say that there were other factors in play in last year's elections that just proved unbridgeable. I think if you were to lead a party that was fully throated to remain... I think you would obviously would have lost a good chunk of Labour votes and you would have had to find those votes elsewhere via other parties or in more safe receipts. Do you think either of that would be possible, particularly in a first-past-the-post system? Yes, definitely. Particularly because it's a first-past-the-post system, actually. Because most constituencies are a straight uh, contest between uh, Labour and Conservative. And uh, all of the minor party candidates, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens... Uh, the nationalists in Scotland and Wales, and there are lots of Labour Conservative marginals in Wales, less so in Scotland, all of them would have had much less difficulty coming over to Labour if we were a clear Remain party. So it's my view that we would have significantly increased our votes if we'd had a straight Remain message at the last election. And a lot of the Labour vote, for the same reason, even if they had wanted to leave on the Conservative terms. And most people who voted leave in 2016 who are Labour voters didn't want to leave on the Conservative terms. It's very important to understand that. What they wanted was a leave option that didn't do economic damage, which they thought might be possible. Well, theoretically, it might have been possible if we'd gone for staying in the customs union and the single market. But it clearly wasn't possible under the Theresa May or Boris Johnson terms 
So given that, I reckon we would have been able to rally almost all of the Labour votes and would have maximised our votes amongst people whose, whose natural preference is Lib Dem or in many cases Conservative, but didn't want to crash out into a hard Brexit as proposed by Boris Johnson. Do you think someone like Keir Starmer would have been able to negotiate that election a bit more successfully? Yes, indeed. I don't know if we'd had Keir Starmer, we would have had the election. Because the other point about this is that uh, wise leadership of the Labour Party would have pressed for a referendum before an election. And all of the opposition parties combined with Conservative rebels had a majority. And that, that majority could have been mobilised for a referendum. The reason it wasn't mobilised for a referendum is that Jeremy Corbyn, again, this was, in my view, completely crazy, decided he wanted an election before a referendum, even though the polls were very clear that he would lose an election. A lot of people talked about how Labour lost the trust of its Brexit-supporting voters in well, recent years, ever since New Labour. Do you think Keir Starmer is the right person to rebuild that trust, or do you think it's not fair to say that any not much trust has been lost? Oh, I think, I think now the voters are moving on beyond Brexit uh, after last December, assuming we do leave and we are on track to leave. I don't think that the Brexit division will matter much hereafter. So I think that's now an irrelevant issue. It only matters if, for some... Uh, extraordinary reason Brexit comes back into play again now, you, you can never say never in politics I mean who would have predicted what's happened in the last few months it's possible that Brexit will come back into play simply because it proves impossible to find a Brexit formula that works but we're not at that stage yet so assuming that we are leaving on some basis which is just about workable then I don't think Brexit and how people voted in uh, in 2016 will be an issue at the next election Brexit is quite a good proxy for other views, particularly on society. And on the cabinet that Keir Starmer's named today, the shadow cabinet, it's all quite pro-immigration and all that kind of liberal things, which seems to identify quite well with people in London, but might not play so well in the other sections of the Labour coalition. I don't think that's going to be the issue. I think the issue is whether on living standards and people's sense of where the country is going, whether they think that Labour at large has better answers than the Conservatives. And the problem in the North as well as the South, in my experience, the same message basically works in both places. Labour's big problem in the last few elections is it hasn't had a positive enough message. Under Jeremy Corbyn, it looked incredible. Most voters in 2019 just didn't think it offered any uh, credible leadership. The manifesto was a, a wish list of totally unaffordable promises. And I can assure you, as a working class guy by background myself, the working classes are every bit as against parties that make unaffordable promises as the middle classes, because they're the ones who lose their jobs and whose taxes go up too. So uh, under Jeremy Corbyn, it simply wasn't credible. And under Ed Miliband, let's be frank, he didn't appear to have a better answer to the future of the country than David Cameron did in 2015. Uh, and he, remember, is an MP for Doncaster. So, you know, there shouldn't have been a problem about a Northern appeal if he'd had decent policies and a strong set of leadership credentials, which is what people really do look for. In general elections, because we don't have a presidential system, but we have a parliamentary system, what we essentially have in our general elections, from all my experience of politics, is a presidential election rolled into a parliamentary election. So though people are, of course, voting for 650 MPs and they're paying quite a lot of attention to policy as well, the single biggest overriding factor in British general election is who people want to be prime minister. And the biggest problem that Labour has had since Tony Blair is it has not, in each of the following four elections, it has not put forward a stronger candidate than the Conservatives on the issue of leadership. 
except ironically, possibly in 2017, when Theresa May literally imploded her policy uh, on social care. There was a famous press conference where she froze in the middle of it, and people thought, good God, you know, she isn't actually up to being prime minister. And that's the reason why Jeremy Corbyn did so well, because in the face of an imploding Theresa May, he looked quite good momentarily. But if you take that out, all of the other three elections, the Conservative leader has been very clearly superior as a Prime Minister candidate to the Labour leader. So the big question, I think, for the next election is, does Keir Starmer look a more plausible, stronger, more effective candidate to be Prime Minister than whoever's leading the Conservatives then? And that's what I think politics will turn on over the next few years. Labour always has to be very, very careful about two issues, which the electorates particularly floating voters, always worry about in respect of Labour. Firstly, are my taxes going to go up sky high? They always worry about that with Labour because they know that Labour's natural reflex is to put people's taxes, just as they worry about the Conservatives that they might want to smash the NHS. It's the equal and opposite one to that. And the second thing they always worry about with Labour is its patriotism and whether it's strong enough for national security. And to be absolutely blunt, in the case of Jeremy Corbyn, he didn't pass that test. People thought he was basically just not patriotic and couldn't be relied on to stand up for the national interest if we needed to use British forces or we were in a um, difficult situation with Russia or, or some hostile power. Keir Starmer has got to, to tick both of those boxes. He's got to be trusted on the economy, not to put people's taxes up unnecessarily, and he's got to be trusted on national defence. And uh, those are the first two things he's got to put right. And after that, you then get to who offers the better vision for the country. Now, the reason I, I mention both of those two is that whereas I don't have any doubt at all about Keir Starmer's credentials on national defence, he did support public ownership. My view, I give him frank advice in private as well as public, is that that won't wash. It labours nationalisation programme at the last election uh, depending on how you calculate it, was at around the 200 billion mark. And a lot of it was unnecessary. I don't think many people think that we're going to get better quality broadband because BT is nationalised, or that the water companies are going to deliver better water and, and, and deal with leaks more efficiently because they're nationalised. And these are hugely expensive nationalisations. So I think he's got to move significantly on this public ownership question before he passes the get-pass-go tests. These uh, sort of ploys to appeal to the Labour membership, do you think that they will drag him to the left quite significantly and that will become a problem in his wider appeal? He would only be dragged to the left if he drags himself to the left. He has just won a leadership election with 57% of the votes, which is essentially a doctor's mandate. It's up to him what he does with it. Uh, the Labour membership wants to win. In my experience, it's very, very similar to before 1997. Once you've lost four elections, you have absolutely run out of excuses. You know, this is like doing your GCSEs four times and not being able to get decent grades. You know, the third time, you know, maybe begging all excuses, you might be able to just about be given another excuse. But on the fourth time, you definitely aren't. I'm afraid there's nowhere else to go. That's the position which Labour's in at the moment. So the only person who will hold back Keir Starmer is Keir Starmer not the Labour Party membership. If Keir said now, I'm sorry guys, we're not doing a big nationalisation programme at the next election because we can't afford it and I cannot go into the election with a credible economic policy that includes nationalising the water companies, the energy companies, the railways, and by the way, offering you free broadband, which is a semi-nationalisation of BT. If he said that, my view is he'd be able to uh, agree it with the party members tomorrow. There wouldn't be a big debate and therefore the buck clearly stops with him.
The other thing is the coronavirus response has really changed the picture in terms of what is legitimate for a government to spend. Does it legitimise more government spending? Definitely not. I mean, coronavirus is a kind of war type situation. So in a war, you have to spend the money you need to spend to win the war. But you can only spend £300 billion once. If we're going to spend £300 billion, as it looks as if we may well have to in business and employment support, which means a huge increase in borrowing, you know, our debt to GDP ratio will probably go up this year 10, 15, possibly even 20%, depending on how long this goes on. That doesn't mean you can do it again. On the contrary, it means that having done it once, you've got to be all the more responsible thereafter. It, it may, to some extent, help to change people's views of the state. After all, it is definitely true that a state that can borrow £300 billion and support people's wages can, on the face of it, deal with homelessness and have a much stronger policy in terms of taxation and equity. But nonetheless, it's still a fact you can only spend £300 billion once and it can't be used as an excuse for doubling everyone's taxes. I have to point out that after the war, it sort of prompted everyone to have a wider look at how society worked. We had everything like the NHS and subsequent investments and projects like that. And you mentioned how coronavirus might prompt us to take a similarly sort of holistic view about how things work. Well, on your point about after the war, it prompted people to reassess. It depends which war you're talking about. After the Second World War, there was the Attlee government and the NHS. After the First World War, there was the Lloyd George coalition and the Geddes Acts and massive austerity. It's very much a question of leadership and consensus. Attlee, after 1945, managed to create a consensus for a welfare state, partly because of what had happened during the war with the Beveridge Report, with Keynes and so on. In the First World War, though, there was a determination not to move to a big state afterwards and a view that any significant move towards socialising the economy would end up in communism. You can't generalise from N equals one. N after massive national crises equals a lot. There are lots of different differences. After the First World War, the electorate was much different and there was a big worry about communism. That had all diminished. The worry about communism had diminished, at least in 1945. It obviously became a lot bigger. And then obviously the electorate was much more reflective of how it is today in the 1945 election than it was in 1918. Uh, I don't accept that at all. 1918 was the first election after the mass franchise. But not everyone voted. It did a very high turnout in the 1918 election. It hadn't taken the form of the electorate that we experienced in 45 and the 21st century. Uh, Well, I mean, you can debate that. I I don't agree as it happens. The point I'm making, though, is that you can't generalise from from one experience leading to uh, a more collectivist view of the role of the state. More recently, 2008-9, the big financial crisis, the general view at the time was that this would lead to more collectivist policies. After all, you know, we just nationalised the banks. Who would have thought that would happen in modern Western economies? And most of the elections afterwards went to the right, they didn't go to the left. So it very much depends upon the quality of leadership and the quality of the policy on offer. Good leadership and a good credible policy which links together social justice with regenerating the economy. And I think you can win it. But if people sense that they're going to um, be poorer and their taxes are going to go up and there's no clear game plan for better paid jobs coming out of it, then uh, I think the right may be the winners, not the left. Do you think the 10 years following the financial crisis undermined the legitimacy of the ideas coming from the right? No sign of it so far, because there were two sets of ideas that came out of the the right in 2008-9. One was that it was too much spending that got us into the mess, 
and that the jury is still out on what the electorate think about that. They certainly haven't been converted to higher levels of state intervention per se. It very much depends upon the credibility of the leaders. And of course, the second big thing which came out of the back of it was a, a big reassertion of nation and national borders. And the thing I find most striking in the coronavirus crisis, standing back for the moment, is the big reassertion of the nation state. How much have you heard of the European Union during coronavirus or the United Nations? What this uh, has definitely shown is that when um, a real crisis strikes where people fear for their personal safety, and that's very much what's been going on with coronavirus, the uh, primary focus is still the nation state. And that assertion of nationalism against supranationalism has been very much an argument of the right against the left in recent years. How badly do you think the EU will come out of it looking well, I think you can make a very good argument for why the EU hasn't taken much action, which is that the main areas that needed to be dealt with in coronavirus weren't EU areas of responsibility. The EU doesn't do healthcare systems, it doesn't do public health, and it doesn't do the policing of civil emergencies. The big issue for the EU is how credible it is to the process of reconstruction. Now, I think it should be very credible and very central, because we're going to want to get trade going again, cross-national cooperation in research and development, in science, and all these things. So I think the EU will potentially be very strong and very powerful, but that does depend upon the EU itself getting its act together and having a really credible strategy afterwards for jobs and transnational growth, and in particular, reviving trade again. In an atmosphere where people are going to be slightly wary about completely reopening borders. So it's going to be a big challenge for the EU. I think that they they can come through and make themselves absolutely central. And then people like me will be arguing why we shouldn't be you know, engaging in an excessively nationalist response. But there's no doubt at all that during this coronavirus pandemic, the EU has been almost entirely irrelevant. Do you think part of Tony Blair's foreign policy with Iraq and in Bosnia as well is part of the idea to play to patriotism and the idea that Britain is a strong international leader? Yeah, it was, that's right at the core of it. And in particular, his Chicago speech of 1999, that there is what he called a, a doctrine of international responsibility, that tyrannical regimes shouldn't be allowed to tyrannise their own peoples, which was the, the justification for intervention in Kosovo, Sierra Leone, and to some extent also in Afghanistan. In Iraq, the issues were different, but that was the heart of his foreign policy. Now, those are arguments which are at the heart of a liberal view of international relations, and it's perfectly possible to hold strong views on each side. It's perfectly possible to hold a strong view that it is the job of the international community to curb tyranny. It's also possible to hold the view, which is also strongly evidence-based, these are both evidence-based views, that the big problem with that is that foreign countries interfering in domestic affairs of another country almost always ends up in tears because it becomes embroiled in issues of nationalism and self-determination. And the truth is, I can see both sides of that argument, and I'm absolutely on the cusp between the two. And I think that you have to make the judgment case by case, and it's not clear as a general rule which argument is better. I think you need a good exit strategy before you go in, and it was very difficult yep. to design an exit strategy for Iraq. That's a very, very good point. It was quite hard even to devise an exit strategy in Kosovo. As soon as you start intervening militarily in another country, exit strategies become very, very problematic. We never had an exit strategy from Afghanistan either. The Taliban, we essentially recreated the Taliban, which became a kind of nationalist insurgency movement against the Western occupation of Afghanistan after 2001, which made it very, very difficult for us to get out there. And there was a near universal international consensus and a Security Council resolution 
behind going in there. So your point is very, very well founded. It's wise not to go into a country until you can see a way out. And that almost always means it's not wise to go in because it's so difficult to devise and envisage an intervention where you can get out credibly without a massive nationalist backlash which defeats the whole purpose of the intervention. Now, I think in Kosovo and in Sierra Leone, which were the first two of the Blair interventions, I think actually the balance of argument lay at the time in favour of going in and actually historically lies in favour of going in too when you're looking at the whole Blair legacy. And to some extent, it was the experience of those, I think, weighed probably too much with him in thinking he could pull off the same experience in, in Iraq. I wanted to move on to more domestic affairs and tuition fees in universities. You obviously brought them, brought them in up to £3,000 and then were very critical of them when they went to over nine. What, what is the highest cap that you would be happy with seeing? But what I would have done after we introduced them was to link them to inflation. And so they would now be, I don't know what inflation would have been since uh, 2004, between four and 5,000, maybe 4,000. I think that would have given confidence to people that this wasn't just the thin end of a wedge. And indeed, the thing I regret most when I look back on it was that we didn't put the cap in primary legislation. And the big issue then was, what's the thin end of the wedge? You know, a lot of people said, well, maybe 3,000 is justified because we can then expand student numbers and have better funded universities. But aha, how can you tell us, Adonis, that the 3,000 pounds isn't going to become 10 and 15,000? And I said then, we will not, we as a government will definitely not increase them. As I say, we, we should have, instead of having just a, a nominal cap, we should have had a cap index thing. And then I think that that would have been perfectly credible. How did you decide on the 3,000 figure? On the grounds that it's about an equal cost share between the state and the students on the actual cost of tuition. And the argument we were making, actually, which I think people bought when we explained it, was that higher education is a social activity. We all gain from having more graduates and having uh, uh, properly trained professionals who are in all the public services and so on. But there's also clearly a massive gain to the individual too. The problem with trebling tuition fees overnight from £3,000 to £9,000, and of course they've now gone up beyond that, is that that argument broke down. This was no longer a cost-sharing between the state and the individual. It was now the student and the graduate taking on not only the whole cost, but in respect of a lot of courses, particularly humanities and social science courses, more than the cost. So it doesn't actually cost £9,500 to deliver a PPE degree at, at Oxford. It does cost £9,500 a degree in medicine at Oxford because, of course, the capital equipment and the more intensive training that takes place. And I think that's the point at which it broke down. I think what we should have done was put in primary legislation that the cap was going to be £3,000 index-linked, and that would have made it much harder for the coalition government to have changed it in 2010. Do you think the subsequent uh, tuition fee increases and subsequent policy demonstrates that the government is beholden to finance and ignoring the views of students and people that don't vote for it? I don't. I don't particularly think that. I think what it does show is that the voice of young people in the electorate isn't strong enough vis-a-vis the voice of older people. The big problem in recent elections is that the young haven't been voting, but the old have been voting in uh, in much, much higher numbers. And there was a big electoral calculation that took place. I mean, you saw it in extreme form in 2010, because David Cameron had two big policies in respect to different age groups. For the young, he had a trebling of tuition fees. But for the retired, he had the triple lock, which was not just an index linking of pensions, 
but a gold plating of pensions by other measures too. And that was a straightforward electoral judgment. And I think the big reflection I have on both tuition fees and also on Brexit is that, uh, as Bill Clinton famously said, politics is won by those people who show up. And the problem is younger voters just haven't been showing up in recent elections and referenda. But older voters have been showing up and they've been taking a very different view. I also wanted to talk about HS2. I was wondering what made the original case so convincing to you. I've always taken the view in public policy that when most other countries do something, they've probably got a point. Almost all other Western developed countries and now most Asian countries have high speed rail systems linking their major cities. The only one that doesn't is the United States. And there aren't many people who think that US public infrastructure is something we should emulate. Now, why have all the other countries done it? And I was studying this carefully when I was Tony Blair's head of policy before I became their transport minister. It's because they face exactly the same question as we face, which is if you're going to need, as you do for capacity reasons, significant extra transport capacity between your major conurbations, and our four biggest conurbations are London, the West Midlands, Greater Manchester, and West Yorkshire around Leeds and Bradford, then there are only a limited number of ways that you can provide it. You can have a lot more domestic aviation. Nobody thinks that's viable in Britain. You can build new motorways. No one thinks that's viable. You can upgrade existing railway lines. We have done that systematically over the last 50 years. And we've now, in the view of most experts, reached the limit of being able to do that without effectively having to build new lines. Or you can build a new railway line. And just as almost every other Western and Asian country has built new railway lines between their major cities for precisely that reason, so should we. On the argument about high speed, it just stands to reason if you're going to build a new railway line, you should build it to modern technology, not to 19th century technology. You know, Brunel didn't come along and say, hey, it'd be a great idea if we built some modern canals. He built what was the technologically modern thing, which was to build a railway. This idea that we should somehow build a railway but not make it high speed is obviously ludicrous. If you're going to build a new railway because you need the extra capacity, then you should obviously build it to modern technological standards. And that also gives you a lot of extra benefits too in terms of enhanced connectivity and journey time savings. Is there a point at which HS2 would become too expensive? There's not a point at which we are going to cease to require HS2 between our four largest conurbations. If because the project is so badly managed, if the public finances are in such a position that we simply can't afford to do it on the timescale that we've previously agreed, then what would happen then is that it would need to be phased over a much longer period. But I'm not in favour of that because uh, in the context of our public finances, we manifestly can afford it. Uh, I'm in favour of having good rather than bad management so we get the costs under control. I think most people are. Does it become even more important that it is completed after Brexit or does Brexit make other projects relatively more beneficial? There are a lot of projects which are important, but there isn't a uh, next generation transport project that is clearly more important than HS2 because of the requirement to have high capacity connectivity between our major cities in the context of cities becoming much more important to the national and international economy and links between them being absolutely vital and also in the social context of Britain of needing to bridge the north-south divide. You're not going to bridge the north-south divide unless you critically bridge the divide between the major conurbations. So there's nothing that's happened in Brexit that's made HS2 less relevant. On the contrary, Brexit has put in very sharp relief this big issue about the future of the north of England and HS2, the main benefits of HS2 go to the Midlands and the north. It's all the more important that we get on and do it. How important is HS2 in a green sustainable economy? 
hugely important because rail, you know, carrying thousands of passengers in one public service vehicle, as opposed to um, hundreds of autonomous cars, let alone aviation, which is the, the least green option available, railways come top. Uh, there's a debate about how fast you should run the trains in terms of uh, reducing carbon emissions. And that's clearly a debate to be had when it comes to actually running the trains, you know, the trade-off between speed and, and carbon emissions. But that's not an argument about failing to engineer your railways to meet modern technical specifications. It's absolutely right to be building HS2 to a 400 kilometer an hour design which is the modern technological standard, you can make a judgment about how fast you run the trains in 10 and 15 years' time. There are some trains to run. What do you think about the expansion of Heathrow? Do you think that's a good direction for infrastructure investment or would you rather be directed elsewhere? The case for expanding Heathrow is very, is very strong because Britain only has one international hub airport and if we don't have an international hub airport, then uh, we're holding back, you know, which has got the capacity it needs to do all of the hubbing to offer the direct flights to uh, uh, growing numbers of international destinations with the capacity then to distribute the passengers from the hub. If you don't have that, then all we're doing is handing over that hub traffic to other hub airports in Europe, which will get much more of the business location decisions as well. So uh, the only argument for not doing it is if it's incompatible with meeting uh, 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 net carbon objectives. But that's not the case. It's perfectly compatible to have an expanded Heathrow uh, and meet net carbon. You just, of course, have to trade off elsewhere in the economy, including elsewhere in transport. Um, and indeed, when, because I was the first minister to take a decision um, uh, on expanding uh, Heathrow, um, uh, now 10 years ago, and we took two decisions at the time. The second is often forgotten. We took a decision to expand Heathrow, but we also cancelled the second runway at Gatwick and the second runway proposed for one of Edinburgh or Glasgow. And we did that precisely to balance environmental with economic, with economic arguments. And what about the location? Might there be a strong case for building it, not in Heathrow, but for building a new modern standard airport near like Manchester, Bradford or Leeds? Well, there might have been, if we were taking this decision 30 years ago, when we did, ne nearly did relocate Heathrow, actually. We started in the 1970s, uh, so 40 years ago. We started uh, building a, a new airport in the Thames Estuary at a place called Maplin Sands. And then and the work actually started. And then it was stopped because of public spending cuts soon after. And instead, what we did was to progressively modernise Heathrow. Huge. I mean, you know, tens of billions of investments has gone into Heathrow in the, in the last uh, 30 years now. The Piccadilly line was extended. The Heathrow Express was built. A crossrail is just about to open to Heathrow. Uh, the fourth terminal was built. Then the fifth terminal. Then the modernisation of Terminal 2. So it's been essentially Heathrow has been rebuilt to, to, to modern and much larger standards, uh, including its connectivity over the last generation. And that would all be a sunk cost if you tried to build a, an airport elsewhere. Nobody's been able to make those economics stack up. One of the problems with all of these infrastructure investments is people that don't like it being built in their backyard. Do you think that's a particular problem in Britain or is it something that's better managed elsewhere in the world? Well, it's not desperately well managed elsewhere. Every country in the world has difficulty with airports. 
don't know if you've been following the controversy over Berlin Airport, but Berlin Airport is massively over budget. I mean, multiple, not a little bit over budget, but multiples over budget. There was a huge planning battle before it could even be started, very similar to our battle over the runway at Heathrow. I think the Berlin Airport is now 20 years late. China on high-speed rail, when I was transport secretary, the Chinese said to me that they would, I remember vividly the Chinese transport minister, saying to me, Lord Adonis, we will build your high-speed two network for half the cost of whatever the Germans tell you, he said. I said, well, that's very kind of you. I said, but at the moment, you know, I have this thing called Parliament and I haven't got any consents yet. So let's have this conversation in five or ten years' time if I'm still around, which of course I wasn't by then. Five years later, he was in jail on sentence of death for corruption because the Chinese high-speed rail network, which is huge, huge corruption in the construction, and there was the world's worst high-speed rail accident in China caused by two high-speed trains crashing, which has happened nowhere else at high speed, which was hushed up for six months. And after it proved impossible to hush it up, the real reasons came out, which is that the track specifications hadn't been built to the design standard because of corruption across cost-cutting, which is the kind of thing that would never happen in a Western country. So this idea that somehow other countries, you know, we beat ourselves up a lot about how other countries are brilliant at infrastructure and we're terrible. It's not true. And don't get me started on infrastructure in the United States. I mean, if you tried to fly to JFK anytime recently, you can take two or three hours to get into JFK at the moment because of their failures to manage a decent public airport. I also wanted to ask about policy making, and in particular, Dominic, one person who I think I mentioned to you that had a very specific approach. Do you think his methods is something that can be learned from, if not the direction that it's going in? Uh, well, I've never seen Dominic Cummings as a very good policymaker. What he is, is, is an extremely good campaigner. I mean, let's always start from what people have done. He won a referendum campaign on leaving the European Union. On the back of having won the referendum campaigns against electoral reform and against the regional assembly in the northeast of England, that is his track record. And then he managed to force through Brexit last year by a process of essentially brinkmanship with Parliament and the Labour Party. Now, can I tell you what I think of those policies, Leo? I think all of those policies are complete crap. So I don't admire him at all, except his political, tactical adeptness at being able to get through very bad policies. I don't want on my tombstone any of the policies Dominic Cummings is associated with. So do I admire his capacity to get going in the Conservative Party? Essentially what he did was to marry populism with the Conservative Party. I admire it, technically. I mean, I hadn't thought it would be possible to convert the Conservative Party to Brexit, lock, stock and barrel, and win a referendum on it. So I admire it, technically. The only bit that is intelligent about it is the use of, of campaigning techniques, messaging and sheer willpower to carry a populist campaign against an alleged elite establishment. I do, looking at it technically, admire the way he managed to sell a wild and destructive populist policy and get a majority for it. But the lesson that I learned from Dominic Cummings is start with good policy, not with bad policy, and then you don't get any further at all with Dominic Cummings. Do you worry that his tactics are here to stay in British politics? I do, a lot, definitely. We've got a populist prime minister and we've got a quasi-populist Conservative Party. This was supposed to be the party that put you know, the economic and national interests first and talked about one nation and all that. So I worry about it a lot. And I think a big responsibility rests on the Labour Party's shoulders to try and find a better alternative to that. 
which it hasn't yet succeeded in doing. I think it's the biggest and most central issue of British politics at the moment, which is, is it possible to have a policy based on serious, rational, wise policymaking and make it popular? Because we haven't done a very good job of that in the last, uh, in the last 10 years now. Do you think that's something people are crying out for, sensible long-term policymaking? Or do they need to be sold it in a more short-term guise? Well, Tony Blair, who, of course, I work for, is the greatest figure of the centre and left that we've had in modern British politics. Tony Blair was brilliant to both of them. Long-term strategic interest of the country, including wise policymaking, but being very, very good at selling it in the short-term political hothouse. There was nobody better at handling the media and presenting a really brilliant and exciting short-term message to the country whilst at the same time having a sensible long-term policy. So what we need to do is, Tony, it's all forgiven, please come back. And if you can't personally come back, and my view is that the best prime minister we've got an offer at the moment is still Tony Blair, but if you can't come back personally, and that doesn't seem to be what's going to happen, then people should be begging him for lessons in political strategy and political salesmanship. 